0: Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Look at what time it is. I think this is the fastest that we've ever zipped through, the um, praise, announcements, offering, um, greeting one another. We're only at 1230, so I predict we're going to get out of here early because (laughs) I'm not preaching for over an hour. (laughs) So um, yeah, things are moving really uh, fast. I do see a lot of empty chairs. Uh, It's so windy and blustery and cold. It's, it's way too cold for me. I'm, I know this is like favorite weather for some of you, but I, it, I have my electric blanket out already, and I've got all my uh, fuzzy, warm uh, winter stuff out. So if you like this weather, great. It's that pumpkin spice latte uh, kind of weather, but I'm, I'm just cold. Um, so as you know, I've been preaching through a series. Um, about people from the Bible, and I'm going to continue that today. I don't know how long it will go for. I don't know if I'm going to run out of people. I I doubt I'll ever run out of people from the Bible that I can talk about and that we can learn truths from. But today, I want to um, talk about a person that's quite well-known. This person is very, very actually famous, not only to Christians, but also just the general public. I mean, if you've not heard of this person, then you're really not culturally literate or savvy in any way. Uh, So not only for Christians, it's not an obscure person that you really have to be a Christian and know your Bibles for, but someone that everybody knows. In fact, um, this person's life is so fascinating that um, Hollywood has made several movies about him, epic films. Uh, Two major films were made about him. Um, Evan Almighty was made in the year 2006. 2007. Can you believe it? It came out in 2007 and starring Steve Carell. And then seven years later in 2014, Russell Crowe starred in the epic um, drama Noah. How many of you saw Evan Almighty? How many of you guys saw Noah? Like only a handful. I saw the first one, but I did not see uh, Noah. So I don't know anything about Noah and the debate whether it was really, you know, adhere to the Bible or not or what. I I didn't see Noah, just Russell Crowe. But the person that I want to talk about is Noah from the Old Testament. And like I said, the story of Noah about the man, the, the myth, the legend, Um, the uh, flood and global destruction and you know it's it's just made for Hollywood it's epic it's it's very it's got Hollywood written all over it a few years ago there was a list that someone put together um, and it was titled all I need to know about life I learned from Noah's Ark now, I think that it, it got forwarded and passed on. A lot of pastors were passing it around. And I think it was published in some like, Christian magazines as well. And it was one of those things where you forward it, and it keeps forwarding. It made its round on social media and stuff several years ago. But it's all I need to know about life I learned from Noah's Ark. And it's a take from that famous book. It's a take on that book. Have you guys heard of all I really need to know I learned in kindergarten? You know, I looked it up. That book came out in 1986. How old do you feel if you said you remember that book, 1986? But all I really need to know I learned in kindergarten was by uh, Robert Fulgham. And I didn't know this, but I found out he's a minister. He's not only an author well-known, but he's also a minister. And so I thought I'd share a few with you. I wanted to share a few from the list of all I need to know about life I learned from Noah's Ark. So here it is, is. First one. Plan ahead. It wasn't raining when Noah started building the ark. Stay fit. When you're 600 years old, someone may ask you to do something really big. As you know, Noah was 600 years old when he started building the ark. <clears throat> Don't listen to critics. Just get the job done. You can imagine everybody who was just, you know, criticizing him, making fun of him, and, and, and all that. So just get the job done. For safety's sake, travel in pairs. (laughs) I like that one. That's cute. Speed isn't always an advantage. The cheetahs were on board, but so were the snails. So they were all together. Don't forget that we're all in the same boat. Yeah, we're all together in this planet together. We're all in the same boat. A few more. If you can't fight or flee, float. (laughs) That's what they did for like almost a year. Remember that the ark was built by amateurs and the Titanic by professionals. Remember that the woodpeckers and termites inside are often a bigger threat than the storm outside. So you can take that to um, mean whatever you want. No matter how bad things look, with God there's always a rainbow. Always a rainbow at the end. And finally, above all else, don't miss the boat. You know how they say, oh, that ship has sailed. Don't let that ship sail. Don't miss the boat. Make sure that you are on it. So these are just it's someone's um, humorous uh, thoughts on life lessons that we can learn from the story of Noah in the Bible. But there are many important biblical truths and biblical lessons that come from it as well that God wants us to learn. And throughout history, people they have been, um, they've been making predictions about the end of the world right? Um, you've been hearing people about global destruction. I mean, all those, there was a time when there were a whole series of movies made, Armageddon, Deep Impact, um, some, some mountain was going to, uh, there was Earthquake, Asteroid, there was a um, Volcano that erupted, what was the name of that one? Dante's Peak. Um, It was all these disaster movies about the end of the world coming, right? Or aliens coming, Independence Day. It was just a whole series of a time when everybody was, you know, just proclaiming doom and gloom, and end of the world was at hand. Uh, Global destruction was going to come, either uh, through a nuclear war of some sort or asteroid hitting the Earth, things like that. And these predictions were about um, natural as well as man-made possible disasters that would happen. And these predictions came from scientists as well as cult leaders, religious leaders. You know how a lot of cultic leaders would like say an actual date saying this is going to be the day uh, that the end of the world is coming and, and they make these predictions. One of the relatively recent predictions for disaster was the whole Y2K thing. Who remembers the Y2K The whole Y2K thing. Yeah, I see a few hands go up. I totally remember. Some of you might be too young. You guys were like in elementary school or something. But if you remember the Y2K, it was a big deal. It was a big, big deal. I was actually living in Canada, British Columbia at the time, in seminary. And so I actually don't know if if hysteria was really bad in America or not, but in Canada, I mean, I was hearing on the news things like, oh, when the clock goes from 11.59 to 12 midnight um, and it goes to the new year 2000, because of the glitch in the computers or something, they were saying that all the airplanes, computer systems aboard, all the airplanes are gonna fail, planes are gonna be just dropping out of the sky. Do you guys remember this? Um, and then the president of American Airlines or Northwest Airlines or something was vowing, no, it's safe. I vowed to be in the air at that time, flying. And, you know, I'm, I, the, There's no problem. Everyone keep flying and, and things like that. And people were filling their bathtubs with water because they thought that basic services, electricity was going to go out. And I mean, it was a quite a um, lot of hysteria, as you can see, the various uh, scenarios here. Remember that? And this was already 18 years ago. Think about that, and you can feel old. I was like, wow, all this stuff. It seems like it's very recent, but it's not. This is already 18 years ago. And there are prophets in the Bible that pronounced God's judgment upon the people. We know, right? People in the Bible. Warning of dire consequences if people did not repent. They preached a message of repentance, and you know, we can think of people like a voice crying in the wilderness. John the Baptist was you know, telling people, um, that the kingdom of God was at hand, and people needed to repent, and um, you know, uh, various ones, a lot of minor prophets as well, all through Israel's history, you know, predicting dire consequences if people did not repent. And I think one of the greatest messages ever preached only contained four words. You know what those four words were? It's going to rain. This is one of the greatest messages ever preached, I think, in the Bible. Four words, um, and those four words are, it's going to rain, and it was preached by Noah. So if you guys can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, we're going to be actually jumping through a lot of verses, but we want to begin with Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Now, for those of you who are very, very familiar with the story, Noah lived during a time of great wickedness and evil on the earth. It was pretty bad. This is what the Bible says. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Look, what, look at the adjectives and the words that it's describing. It says that every Inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil, not just some of the time, but all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord." God decides to destroy the entire human race due to their wickedness and corruption. But he finds one man named Noah and his family, Noah's family. He had a wife, three sons, and three daughters-in-law who were worth saving. Of all the wicked uh, people all over the earth, he finds this one man, Noah, and his family that are worth saving. And you all know the story. So the Lord tells Noah to build him a huge, huge boat, a huge ark. And it was 450 feet by 75 feet by 45 feet. And for perspective, I was Googling this and trying to get images and Google image searching and stuff like that. For perspective's sake, if you can imagine, that's the length of about one and a half football fields. That's how large this ark was that he built. There's a um, true-to-life size one that's built in Kentucky, right? Have you all heard of that? It's like the Museum of Noah's Ark or something. Has anyone ever been there to Kentucky to see this? No? No one's ever just in Kentucky so that you can stop by to see it, right? But if you can imagine, I've seen pictures of it, and it is amazing. It's a huge scale. It's about one and a half football fields um, long. And he has to gather seven pairs of clean animals, male and female, and two of every unclean animal, male and female, and bring them all into the ark. Now the ark wasn't built in a day. Um, When you read the story of Noah's ark, I think that a lot of times we kinda, our our idea and the timeline and the scope of things, it's like it just moves along because the story is all done in less than two chapters and the Bible is like thousands of pages long. And so we think of it as just like blip, 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 just moving right along. But again, you have to stop, you have to pause and think for a second. It was not built in a day. Do you know how long it took for this ark to be built? It took about a hundred years. 100 years, right? Isn't that surprising? It took about 100 years. Some scholars put it around 75 years. The lowest number I've seen in all my research over this was 55. The the lowest number uh, number of years was 55, and the highest number was 120 years. So I'm just going to say 100 years, okay? Happy medium there. And during that time, Noah preached this message, this four-word message that was, it's going to rain. It's going to rain. Even by his pure action of building this big boat that was going to float, and while people were laughing at him, maybe ridiculing him, and, and all this, he kept, you know, even with his physical body as he's building, he and his family building this huge ark, he is proclaiming that it is going to rain. And then one day, it does. One day, all the hammering, all the noise, all the saw and and building noises stop. And instead, another strange noise takes over. And it's the pitter-patter of rain. And the rain begins. And it rains and rains. And it continues to rain. And it doesn't stop for 40 days and nights. And the whole earth was covered with water. Noah and his family and the animals stayed in the ark for how long do you think they were in the ark? Any guesses? How long were they in the ark? Very specifically, and I've looked this up with various, compared all Bible scholars, commentaries, um, and searched it, they say 378 days is the consensus. 378 days on a boat! I won't even go on a cruise! You know, I like my feet on, on solid ground because I'm afraid of like, you know, seasickness, motion sickness, and things like that. I won't even go on a seven day or three nights, four day cruise. They were on the water for 378 days, about a year. That's incredible. That's a very long time to be at sea, or on in this boat, right? And when the waters finally receded, they came off the ark, and they were commanded to repopulate the earth, right? The people as well as all the various animals, to just refill and repopulate the earth. And God promised that he would never again flood the earth. He would never again, he gave a covenant, he gave a promise, never again would he destroy the earth by water. And the rainbow was a sign of this. And we're very familiar with the story, that when we see the rainbow, it's a sign of God's promise that he will never flood the earth again. So what can we learn from this story of um, Noah from the Bible? To find out, let's ask this question. A lot of times when we read these stories from the Old Testament we have to remember that in the New Testament, right now we here have the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the people who lived during the time of the New Testament, Jesus and all of them, they had scriptures too, but what they had was the Old Testament and to them that was the whole Bible to them, because the New Testament was not written and distributed and sent around and put together yet, right? And so the question that we need to ask when we read these um, Old Testament stories is, when Jesus and the people of the New Testament, when they read about Noah in their Hebrew scriptures, in their Bible, what did they see as the important themes? Right, So if you're reading through the lens of the New Testament people, and they're reading Scripture, the same Scripture that we have, what were their thoughts? What did they think were important themes from this story? What did they think were the main points of Noah's story? And we can see that what they thought... Um, <clears throat> We can see what they thought by reading in the New Testament each time that they mentioned Noah. You know, there are a lot of times in the New Testament where they quote the Old Testament or they talk about various uh, ones, people from the Old Testament. And so we have to pay close attention to that. We can see what they thought by reading what they say about Noah. And there are three specific places in the New Testament, where New Testament um, mentions Noah specifically. And that's what I want to look at today. So Jesus is the first one, and then Peter, the Apostle Peter, and the author of Hebrews, Those three, they all talk about Moses. And each time that they do, it's in the context of God's judgment. It's about man's sin, and it's about God's condemnation of the sin. So each time, each of these three times, context of God's judgment coming. There's condemnation for the sins of the people. So let's look at these three lessons from Noah. They're highlighted for us in the New Testament, and we can see how they apply to our lives today. First, God's judgment is real and it is coming. God's judgment is real and it is coming. People tend to ignore the reality of judgment. The first reference to Noah in the New Testament is when Jesus is speaking. In Matthew 24, 37-39, you can find it in your Bibles or read it up here. It, this is Jesus. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. People haven't changed that much from the time of Noah, from the days of Noah, and people haven't changed that much from the time of Jesus and the New Testament. And people have not changed that much to our present day and current today, right? If you think about the world of the Old Testament, their wickedness, their corruption, and all that stuff, and you think about the time of Jesus, and you think about our time today, currently, people are people the human nature, there's not that much different. There's nothing new in, under the sun. You know, There's nothing new or different about how people are. People haven't changed that much. People continue to break all of God's commands, but don't consider the possibility that God will punish them for it. We live as we like, do as we please, think, do, and, and speak all that we want, And we don't consider the possibility that God will punish us for it. And sadly, some people who do, who do understand and think about the punishment, they make a joke about it. Uh, If you guys know Ted Turner, he is a media mogul. He is the founder of CNN and the um, Turner Broadcasting um, Service, media mogul. He once was quoted as saying, if indulging in wine and women means you end up in hell, that's where I want to go. Can you believe, you know, they take it so lightly and they even joke about it. If indulging in wine and women means that, you know, you end up in hell, that's where I want to go, is what Ted Turner says. And in churches today, many people are uncomfortable with this topic of God's judgment. Many people are very uncomfortable with the concept of hell, right? We don't preach hell often. We don't talk about hell. Um, We don't talk about God's judgment and, you know, just... um, it used to be back during the times of the Quakers and such and, you know, sinners in the hand of an angry God, Jonathan Edwards and, and other people. And it was all like, you know, um, brimstone and, and you know, repent. And there was that strong sense of there's evil. We are evil. Repent, repent, you know, that kind of thing. But but in churches, I think we've shied away because we're uncomfortable with that topic. We're uncomfortable with the thought of hell that people Not everybody is gonna go to heaven. There are people who are gonna go to hell, and we're just uncomfortable with that. We prefer a nice, loving God who is always forgiving and understanding. We prefer to speak and preach and talk about a God who is, yes, he is forgiving, yes, he is nice, he is loving, but we shy away from talking about the the uh, angry God, the jealous God, the vengeful God, the uh, the God that will punish. You know, we we tend to kind of shy away from those things. In fact, when we When we hear such things, we think of it as, oh, my God, that's blasphemy. How dare you say that about God? He is loving. God is love. You know, when you say God is vengeful, and it's almost like a shock to you. How dare you say that about God? I remember in University of Maryland College, I I had to take a freshman psych class. I still remember because it was so traumatizing. It was called God and the Cosmos. I had to take a... um, Uh, credit, uh, elective, and so I chose that, God and the Cosmos, and I'm very innocent. I went through Pastor Q's discipleship when I was in youth group, so I'm very narrow in my scope of Christian life and (laughs) discipleship with Pastor Q, and, um, you know, I didn't have a lot of non-Christian friends. My whole life was church, Friday night, Sunday, and my friends are all Christian, things like that, so I go to class, This like class, Um, God and the Cosmos, I don't know if they even still teach it anymore, but I still remember Dr. Martin was his name. And this guy, um, we talked about God and cosmos and about um, creation theory and things like that. And then one student, I remember, raised their hand and said to um, the professor, said something like, um, well, I don't believe that. You know, I'm a Christian, and you know, the God in the Old Testament, something, 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 right? And this person said, and I was like, wow. You know, I, I was thinking the same thing, but I didn't have the nerve to say anything or actually you know, say it out loud in class. And the professor, I still remember to this day, he was like, every time we have this lecture, someone always says this. Let me just tell you, the God of the Old Testament, that was one mean son of a beep. And I was like, I'd never heard anyone call God a son of a beep, and you know, and, and curse about God in that way. And I remember. My whole paradigm was rattled just by something, something as simple as that. You know, that was just my innocent life. And so we're just so not used to it if you're growing up in the church. Our, things, our thoughts of God, nice, loving, God is love. But God will punish evil. God will punish evil. It's an important part of his character. It is. It is who he is. It is. In Exodus 3, 5 through 7, then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Yes, he's forgiving, loving, and, you know, abounding for generations. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Peter explains in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, where he refers to the world being destroyed by water. He doesn't specifically mention the name no- uh, Moses. He doesn't specifically mention Noah's name, but he talks about the world being destroyed um, by water. Let me see. And he says that the coming destruction in the beginning with Noah was with water, but the coming destruction of the ungodly was this time gonna be by fire. See if I have the slide for that. Yeah, Second Peter three, three through four. It's going to be by fire. Above all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires, and they will say, "Where is this coming? He promised." Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it had, as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The ungodly... will be destroyed by fire this time, not water. So we need to realize the importance of judgment. We have to understand why that there is punishment. Any parent would understand, right? You can't always only give out rewards, rewards, rewards for good behavior. Every good parent knows also there's a flip side punishment for bad behavior right so we have to understand why there is punishment many people believe that God's punishment is just unjust or unfair they think that maybe the crime does not fit the punishment you've heard that phrase before the crime doesn't how what did I do that was so bad that that um, warrants eternal damnation and hell forever and ever what is it that I did that was so bad you know, and people believe that that the punishment God metes out is unjust or unfair. But think about it this way: when someone wrongs us and they go unpunished, right? Someone, think about this: someone wrongs you and they don't get punished. Nothing happens to them; they get away with it. Oftentimes, we become angry with God and we say to God, God, that's not fair! I'm playing by the rules, and, and this person cheated and got ahead. And we're like, God, that's not fair, because that person just skates through life and is, goes unpunished. And so we get angry at God about it. Yet, when we wrong God, which is what we're doing every time that we sin, when we wrong God, we somehow think that punishing us would be inappropriate. You know, we think that it's not fair. We think, but God, you're a loving God. We start calling upon all the characters of God. But God, you're forgiving to a thousand generations. But God, you know, um, and we, we just feel like punishment is, isn't inappropriate for such a loving God as you. You know, we say these things. The reality of God's judgment is something that we cannot ignore. And again, I feel that um, in the church, we're afraid to talk about it because especially even right now, if there are some of you who are visiting or who are not Christian or who are not fully um, believing and on board with the truths of what I'm speaking, this is very offensive to you that this is very, you know, you can't believe that I'm, I'm saying this or that we, there are people out there that actually believe this when I talk to my non-Christian friends. But the reality of God's judgment is something we cannot ignore, although we try to. The second lesson from Noah is that God's people, this is the good news now, all this doom and gloom that I talked about, the good news here, the second lesson from Noah, is God's people will be spared from this judgment. God's people, there is judgment coming, judgment is warranted, but God's people will be spared from his judgment. The apostle Peter refers to Noah in 2 Peter 2 verses 5 5 and 9. Here's the apostle Peter saying, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. That was his wife, three sons, and three daughters-in-law. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. He knows how to rescue the godly from trials, but he also holds the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. It says here that God's people will be protected even while... God punishes the ungodly on judgment day. And this is what happens in Noah's day. God finds Noah to be righteous and godly. And so he protects him and saves him while the rest of the people, the ungodly, are all judged by this great flood. Genesis 7, 7 and 23 and a few other verses. Let me read. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for a hundred and fifty days. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Though the flood destroys the entire population, Noah, his wife, three sons, and their wives, their three wives, they're safe and dry inside of the ark. This is what Peter points out, that God protects his people in the midst of judgment. So judgment will come, but we have God's protection. This applies to the Christians today in two ways, specifically to us. God saves us from the eternal judgment of hell. Hell is a reality. You, if, if you believe in heaven, then you've got to believe that there's a hell as well, right? And so this applies to us Christians in two ways. God has saved us from eternal judgment. He has saved us from hell. And hell is essentially, what is hell? What is essentially hell? Hell is, at its core, essentially what it is, is total, absolute, complete, permanent separation from God forever, I don't think I could think of anything worse than that. I mean, there's arguments about what does hell really look like? Is there really fire? No, is it, if you've read Dante's um, Inferno, is it really in the middle, is it ice? Like, you know, there's all these uh, of what hell actually looks like. Is it a real physical torture or what? But you just need to know that hell essentially at its core is total, complete, absolute, permanent, forever and ever and ever without the presence of God. I can't even imagine that. I can't. And as Christians, this is something that we will never have to experience. I can't imagine it, but I know that as a believer and as someone, a child of God, that I never have to, that I, n- I never have to experience it. John five twenty four says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. That is good news. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. That's John 5, 24. Now, secondly, the story of Noah also shows us that God protects his people when adversity and difficulties strike. You know, living this life as Christians, we were never promised, of course, that it would be, you know, rosy, easy sailing, that our lives would be all, you know, Nice and filled with flowers and things. God's protection of Noah and his family, it didn't mean that life was easy for Noah. Remember, think about Noah, right? The man is old. He's 600 years old, right? And as he's building this ark, and it took him, like I said, for almost 100 years, I'm sure he was being ridiculed. He was being, you know, made fun of. I'm sure that, you know... There was a lot of of people who were just, you know, being nasty to him, mean to him and his family, right? And I'm sure the whole while, not just for a day or two, but the whole time he's building this ark, this is happening. Also, think about this. Building the ark was hard work. You know, with God's divine power, he could have just been like, bam, and then, you know, an ark would be created. You know, kind of like how he created the heavens and the earth. Let there be, you know, light, and there was light. Let there be an ark. And there was an ark. You know, like God has this power to speak forth, you know, life and to speak forth, you know, things into being, right? But here, Noah, who's 600 years old, is toiling away with his poor wife and and kids at building this thing for a year. I can't imagine that it was easy. It was hard work, physical labor, toil. I'm sure it was hot, all this stuff. And then on the ark itself, taking care of the animals. And being in the ark for almost a year, I'm sure, was not fun. You know, you hear all these jokes about, you know, you have to shovel a lot while you're on that ark, right? Because there's a lot of, you know, animals, and a lot of animals produce a lot of poop. And so you got to imagine that there's ways of feeding them, caring for them, cleaning up after them, and the smell. I can't even, I go to the zoo or a petting zoo or farms and things like that, and you know the smell of it all, but they're in a contained you know, environment on water for a year. Think about that. So taking care of the animals, being in the ark, and all this stuff is not fun, I'm sure. But God was with them, and God remembered them. Verse 1 here, but God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock. God did not forget them. God remembered them. Here's a quote that I read that I really like. It is much better to be going through a tough time with God beside you than to be going through an easy time without him next to you. No truer words. It is much better to be going through a tough time with God beside you than to be going through an easy time without him next to you. And we can, as believers, we can find comfort in this. The third lesson, third and final lesson um, is, like Noah, like Noah, we all should be men and women of faith. We should be men and women of faith. Hebrews 11:7. 7. This is the third time that um, Noah is specifically mentioned in the New Testament, author of Hebrews. By faith, Noah, when warned about the things not yet seen, in holy fear, he built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. How many times does the word faith come up here? By faith he does this, by faith, and he's keeping with the faith. Noah had incredible faith, incredible faith. You know, it wasn't so f- a far reach for us to imagine that the people didn't believe him. When Noah's preaching his four-word sermon, it's going to rain, it's going to rain. Come on, you guys, it's going to rain. Um, when he's saying this and preaching this and building uh, this book, it's not um, incredible to us that the people don't believe him. Because if we were there, we wouldn't believe him either, right? What's incredible is that Noah believed God. That's the more miraculous, amazing, incredible thing. Not that the people didn't believe, but that Noah actually believed. He trusted God enough to obey God, to obey God's bizarre request to build an ark. If God comes to you and... and and requests something absolutely bizarre, something like this. You know, I just can't imagine how many of us would be able to, by faith, take it that it's from God and then to be able to do it. So he trusts God enough to obey God's um, bizarre request to build this ark. It says in Genesis 6-9, This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Let me ask a question. What does it mean to be righteous? It says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless, and he walked faithfully with God. What does it mean to be righteous? Well, it doesn't mean that Noah never sinned. It doesn't mean that he was sinless. Noah was basically good, And he was a godly person, yes. That makes him righteous, yes. But how did he get that way? How did he become righteous? Especially when everyone else around him was wicked and corrupt to the bone. Everyone on earth, the whole wide world, was wicked and deserved to be completely destroyed. Everyone was evil. So how is it that Noah and his family were gonna assume um, that they were righteous? Let's look, at, um, let's look back at Genesis 6, 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It says Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah did not find favor from God because he was a righteous man. But rather, it was the other way around. This is kind of a difficult thing to wrap your head around. But rather, it was the other way around. He became righteous because he found favor from the Lord. Does that make sense? I'm going to say it again. Noah did not find favor because he was a righteous man. It wasn't because he was first righteous that God favored him. But rather, it was that Noah became righteous because God favored him. It's it's the opposite. Noah is a righteous person because God's grace alone, from God's grace alone, Right? He didn't earn God's favor. He didn't do things and say things and, and be things. And he didn't earn God's favor. But what happened was it was God's grace alone which he received through faith because he had such amazing faith. And because of that faith, he received God's favor and then the righteousness. If God was looking for people today, if he was looking for people who on their own, without any help from God whatsoever, if he tried to find people who are living righteously, would he find any? No. Because none of us, no one, can be righteous or live righteously without God. This is famous. Romans 3.10.23 says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is, you know, verses that we quote all the time. We're all sinners and no one is righteous, not even one. It is in and by God's grace that God chooses to show favor on various ones. And so it is by God's grace that we are able to trust and have faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Another question that Noah helps us answer is, what does it mean to have faith in Jesus Christ? It's more than believing that he existed and that he's a good guy, because there's a lot of people who don't absolutely have this faith in Jesus Christ, but they believe Jesus existed, they believe that he was a prophet, they believe that he was a good guy. Noah shows us that the mark of genuine faith is that it leads to action. That it leads to action. One of the my, my favorite um, books in the Bible, actually, my favorite book is actually James. I'm very practical. When I was in seminary, we had spiritual theology, practical theology, systematic theology, um, you know, all these different theologies, and my favorite was always practical theology. It's always like, how does the you know. How do our lives intersect? All this head knowledge about theology, how does that intersect and play out practically in our lives? That was my favorite. Some people love the spiritual theology. I had Eugene Peterson, the author of The Message. He's amazing. He was my spiritual theology professor, and you can't get any better than him. But that was all spiritual and so, you know, very, you know. And then I had J.I. Packer, Dr. Packer, for systematic theology. And it was very systematic. Let me just tell you, it was boom, 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 boom. But practical theology is, is what I loved, and and so it's no surprise that James is one of my favorite books. Hebrews eleven seven says that because Noah had faith, that he obeyed God. Right. So let me look at Genesis six twenty two and seven five. It says Noah did everything just as God commanded him, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. So James chapter two is famous for its passage on faith and action, right? You know, faith without works is dead faith and, and all that stuff. So here, James 2, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? What good is it if we say we believe and we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as our, as our Savior and as our Lord, but we have no deeds? Can such faith save us? in the same way faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action is dead and i want to conclude with 1 peter 3:20 through verses 22 here it is 1 peter 3:20 20 through 22 i want to conclude with this to those who were disobedient long ago when god waited patiently in the days of noah while the ark was being built In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. While building the ark, Noah continued to preach his four-word sermon it's going to rain judgment was coming then and it will come again who would have thought though when i read this it was it's so you know interesting here who would have thought that god would use water to destroy the world right he uses the flood he uses water to destroy the entire world because of its sin in the old testament and then what does he do in the new testament he uses water as a powerful sign and symbol Through baptism, the use of water, in the New Testament, he uses it as a powerful sign and symbol as a means of saving people from their sins. You go through the waters of baptism when you're baptized, right? And it's such, such a sacrament that we celebrate. Think about it. Water in the Old Testament used to destroy people because of their sins. And then in the New Testament, this water is supposed to save us from our sins symbolically. While the previous three lessons from Noah were from passages that spoke about judgment and condemnation and God's wrath and and judgment that was coming, this one here, 1 Peter 3, 20-22, this one speaks about hope and salvation. Just as the ark had only one door through which you can enter to be saved, from God's judgment if you look at the picture of the ark and if you read all the details there was that one door and once all the animals and and Noah's family got on board it says that God shut the door right that it wasn't the people that shut it but God shut the door so just as the ark had only one door through which you can enter to be saved from God's judgment of the flood so Jesus is the only door we can enter, enter through to be saved. John 10, 9 says, I am the door. Those who come in through me will be saved. This is Jesus. I am the door. Those who come in through me will be saved. And so just as in the Old Testament, through the one door in the ark, Noah and his family and the animals were saved, here, through this one door, who is Jesus Christ, that we can enter into and be saved. And that's the promise and assurance That we have as believers. Every time I think of Noah and the ark, we always see the glorious picture of the, you know, very colorful with with the rainbows and such. That's the promise and assurance that we have as believers. This beautiful picture there's the ark on top of Mount Mount Ariad, and then we have the people. The The first thing when they come and out of the ark is what do they do? Noah builds an altar and worships and sacrifices. That's why there was more uh, clean animals than unclean animals because they were going to be used for sacrifice and such. And so this beautiful picture, this promise of God, this this rainbow that stands over us as, as God's covenant with us. And I just want to close by saying if for some reason you aren't sure And we talk about this is the assurance, this is the promise that we have as believers. But if for some reason you aren't sure, then please come talk to me after the benediction or any time that you're free and you would like to, to please come talk to me. You know, in most churches, we don't do altar calls anymore, but I'm willing to bet that there are people, you know, even sitting right next to you and even among you now, that sometimes just aren't sure. They're just not sure about their salvation. Um, but again, we don't always do these altar calls, but I think we should, uh, we should just to um, be more sure about that. But in case you aren't, please come talk to me after the benediction or um, any time that you have time. So if I get the priest, to come. There's a story of Noah and the Ark. It's not just a kid's you know, fun fairy tale. Some people, a lot of people, there's reaction against the fact that this flood actually really happened. Uh, There's people who argue that it was more a localized flood, that it wasn't a worldwide flood. Some people believe that it really was worldwide. And some people believe that it wasn't, there wasn't any kind of flood. This is just a story. It's a a fable, it's allegorical and all this stuff. Um, But, you know, whichever that you may, um, you subscribe to, to understand that through the story of Noah that we can see that God's judgment, condemnation, the core of the story is because of the wickedness of man, that he does punish evil. And how long we can get away with it? Not forever. Not forever. That day of judgment will come. And again folks we the good news is we sitting here and i would like to think that every single one of us sitting here all of you are saved and so you will never have to know what hell is which is the complete absence and separation from god to always have god next to you all the days of your life and beyond to eternity and beyond is what we desire as god's presence with us let's all stand